Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. Welcome to CX Stories. My name is Tashara Dibley and I'm from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Today I'm speaking with Associate Professor Camille Raines-Greeno. Camille is a Robinson Fellow and the Director of Public Health Practice at the Sydney School of Public Health here at the University of Sydney. Camille's research focuses on interventions in the period around birth that can improve outcomes for women and children. Using epidemiological methods, her research is public health oriented and focuses on population prevention and interventions that target behavior, measure and examine health service delivery and integrate and apply to policy. Her current projects include investigating the perinatal burden associated with household air pollution exposure in resource poor settings and as well as investigating modifiable risk factors for reducing stillbirth and neonatal mortality both in Australia and in international settings and today she'll be talking about some of her work in Myanmar. Welcome, Camille. Thank you. So, Camille, I'm also interested in your own personal reasons for getting involved in this sort of research. Uh, could you share a little bit about how you came to to doing this sort of work and, and, and why? So I'm the eldest of four children and my parents had me really young. They were 19 and 20 when they had me. And I'm I feel really lucky and privileged. And part of our family story was all about what my mother had given up for the four of us, not in a negative way, but in a positive way for looking after us and all the opportunities that she didn't have growing up. And so therefore, I was just always committed to women's rights and women's issues. Then when I started working, I always knew that I wanted to work in women's health and be an advocate for women. Uh, And then I started working early on in a perinatal research group and realised that women don't have any voice when they're pregnant and when they're first having children. They lose their voice and it's such a transient period as well. So you don't have the advocates and the advocacy that other conditions have. And I felt like that I wanted to be that voice in there and stand up for women throughout my career. And so that's what I'm doing. And that's why I'm so fascinated by that area. That's wonderful. Thank you. So you, you work in public health. I'm interested in just broadly, what are the intersections between public health and human rights? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, the concepts of human rights around justice and equity underpin everything that we do in public health. So although we don't explicitly say we're doing human rights work right now, everything that we do is underpinned by those same values. And what about in your own work? When you're thinking up research questions, are you driven primarily by the human rights concerns or are there other factors driving your questions and they just happen to intersect with issues around human rights? Yeah, again, we're looking at inequalities often and improving health outcomes. And so, again, it's around justice and equity. So it's looking at the differences and inequalities with access to health services, for example, or inequalities related to health outcomes. And so... It is underpinned by human rights, again, although we don't explicitly say it. So your own work specifically investigates the extent to which women access the World Health Organization's recommended eight antenatal care visits in Myanmar. So before we talk about the details of that research, I think our listeners would be interested in understanding what an antenatal care visit is and why it's important. That's a good question as well. So antenatal care is the cornerstone of care 
around pregnancy and it's the time where we get to screen women for detection of risk, we intervene for improving healthy behaviours and we just ensure that the fetus or the baby is developing correctly throughout the pregnancy and monitor and track that, provide vaccinations and a whole lot of other um, interventions to ensure a healthy pregnancy and healthy birth. And if it's the one time where women and children intersect with the healthcare and where they're often motivated to change their behaviour. So it's a really opportunistic time to intervene at that stage as well. Is that why there is a sort of World Health Organisation recommendation of these eight visits? Because there are, there's that opportunity over those multiple visits to change behaviours? Yeah, well, it's recognised. It's more around care rather than um, changing behaviours. But that, from a public health perspective, we often look at the behaviours as well. So the World Health Organization uh, a few years ago, so they had original antenatal care program was more around six contacts, they call them now, or visits. And more recently, they decided to change it up to eight. And that's in recognition of the fact that eight is better than six. And it improves uh, opportunities for women to have a healthy pregnancy, the outcome. I'm interested in how these sorts of recommendations that are made by international bodies like the World Health Organization, how well are they taken up by governments or well let's talk specifically about Myanmar is it is it has the Myanmar government sort of taken on this recommendation as its own policy in general countries do try to adopt the WHO recommendations often there's local context specific issues around that and whether they agree with the evidence or not but generally countries are motivated to adopt the WHO recommendations in Myanmar so the work that we've done in Myanmar is looking at data that preceded the actual rollout of the WHO recommendation. So it's looking to see whether it's possible to change on how well Myanmar was on track to meet these newer recommendations because the evidence around them is increasing before the WHO actually adopts them. So it's not like that's sort of just new data. So what was the data you were looking at for this particular study? So we looked at the DHS data for the first time, and it's the first time that Myanmar has done a demographic and health survey. So these are population health surveys that go around to each household. They're funded through the USAID program, and they're done in mostly low and middle-income countries. And for some countries, they're the only population health data that's available. So it's really exciting to get that. And it was a really great opportunity for Myanmar to go and do this and a great um, initiation of the government to adopt these and do them. And so we looked at this first round of data collection to see what we could do around antenatal care. When was this particular round of DHS data collected? So this round of data was done in 2015 and 2016 in Myanmar. And the data that's collected, because the way it's collected, it goes to the household and they interview a woman and a, and a husband and they ask them about the previous five years. So it actually relates to the five years before the actual time of the data collection. So your results showed that there were some significant differences in the experiences of women living in rural and urban areas. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And that's something that we see across the world all the time. We see that here as well, that differences in your location of your residence determines how well you can access or how easy it is for you to access health services such as antenatal care. And so what were those differences in Myanmar? So we found that women who lived in urban settings were more than fourfold likely to receive an adequate number of antenatal care components compared to rural women. So that's a really big difference actually in access to care. 
So that's quite significant even compared to other Southeast Asian countries, compared to Australia. Fourfold difference. Yeah, that's quite a big difference. So yeah, that's quite significant compared to other settings. And did your research highlight any of the reasons why that difference existed? Uh, It's hard to tell exactly from this data. Of course, though, we speculated around that. And that's And, you know, it's the same reasons that occur here in Australia and in other settings around the world as well. It's just about provision of services in those settings and distance that people have to travel to get there. And, of course, in Myanmar, rural settings and also here, although not always, um, people who live in rural settings are often from a lower socioeconomic background and so have less funds to access these sort of services as well. So linked to that issue of socioeconomic difference, I think your um, research also demonstrated some significant difference between women who are accessing antenatal care at public and private facilities. Could you explain a little bit about what the difference is between public and private health facilities in Myanmar? Yeah, it's quite complex uh, provision of care. I mean, Australia also has quite a complex health services provision as well with a mix of public and private care, but it's a little bit clearer around antenatal care in Australia, where it's mostly public, although you can obviously pay for private care as well. In Myanmar, the mix is quite different as well. So women often pay for private services, but they may be run out of smaller, unregulated places, unregulated practitioners, and public service may be really crowded and may have a bad reputation as well because they might have to wait a little bit longer there. So the actual uptake of the different services is a little bit hard to tell exactly from this data and it may depend on exactly where you're talking about as well. So you mean different facilities might have quite different reputations and people might have different access to them in different regional areas? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it also doesn't sound like there's a clear benefit over using public or private in in the context of Myanmar? Yeah, I can't exactly say that clearly, and especially from this data. Other research that we've done suggests that public care is regulated and has a government oversee and there's certain criteria that people have to meet before they can provide care, whereas in private settings they may not have that same regulation and anyone can sort of stick up a sign and and start practising antenatal care. Yeah, so what were the differences in access to antenatal care between women who access public versus private? So we found that um, pregnant women who are attending the private facilities for antenatal care compared to those who were at the public facility were twice more likely to have adequate components of antenatal care compared to their counterparts who receive antenatal care from other, other sources. So they were getting better care in the private facilities? Yeah, it's hard to say better, but they were getting reaching more of the components of antenatal care. So then how does that feed into a policy recommendation? Yeah, that's a really complex question as well. So we need more data before we could make a proper decision around this and to advise around policy, but it looks like it's access and equity issue again and about who's providing what and who can access private care. If women who are accessing private care have better care, then we somehow need to improve the public health service as well to ensure that they also have um, the same components of private care as well. So the final factor that your paper looked at was, well, it wasn't the final factor, there were quite a few, but another really interesting one was age and how age influenced the likelihood of women to follow the recommendations. Could you comment a little on that? So age is a really complex issue around health services because younger women are encouraged in some settings, like Myanmar, to marry early, but actually don't have any 
empowerment to attend services and make decisions about their health care. In this study, we found that younger women were much less likely to access health services and receive antenatal care compared to older women as well. And that's fairly typical of what happens. So younger women are sort of more vulnerable in this situation. They are lacking the knowledge and experience to be able to access the healthcare, and this is reflected in the the data that you're finding about who is accessing the um, health services in the recommended way. Yeah, that's right. So younger women definitely tend to have less self-efficacy around making their health decisions. There's also some shame as well very early on in their marriage around accessing antenatal care, even though it speaks to that they're having intercourse, even though it's a good thing as well. It's a really complex situation. Yeah, so there's lots of, I guess, intersections with cultural expectations around women's behaviour and what's meant to happen within a marriage and, and what are, what's expected of women and that sort of thing. What's next with this? Are these going to feed into particular policy recommendations? Are these findings significant in the context of other research you've done on the experience of women in other places. Could you put this research in a, in a broader context? So Myanmar isn't that different to other low and middle income countries and that they're not quite yet reaching the targets suggested by the WHO. As far as pos- policy implementation goes, I mean, the WHO guideline is already there and it's just how to implement that in a country that with such diverse needs. And that's very difficult. And that is a, that is a question that is way beyond the scope of the work that we did. And especially considering what's happening in Myanmar at the moment, what happens now with this kind of analysis is very questionable. Yeah, well, that was actually one of my next questions, which is how the current political situation influences your next steps with this research and also the likelihood of the WHO recommendations being taken up. Yeah, so I mean, women and children are the most vulnerable in relation to what's happening in Myanmar and in relation to the COVID pandemic as far as being neglected. It's such a critical time to intervene and it sets the course, the life course of the child in the right direction. And yet it's going to be these women and children that suffer the most. So I suspect that this will set back Myanmar quite a long way in regards to meeting the WHO targets. Other work we're doing in Myanmar has also been put on hold and we haven't had any contact with our colleagues there yet. So we're just sort of waiting for the situation to settle down to see where we can go next. And of course, this is something that is of critical importance to the next generation of the Burmese, but um, I suspect it might not be of critical importance to the government at the moment. So when we've talked about doing research around human rights issues with some of the other contributors to this mini-series, we've had sort of different stories about the extent to which the political situation influences their ability to do their research. Just wondering, from your experience with this work, has, I think a lot of this work was done prior to the current situation in Myanmar, but have you, as a public health researcher, kind of experienced limitations uh, on the kind of research that you're doing, you know, in, in doing work in Southeast Asia and how have you managed it? Yeah, of course, we've experienced lots of different issues in just about all of the work that we've done. So we've done some capacity building around research skills, this research, some other research around breastfeeding. We've got this other research around improving data collection for perinatal mortality um, on hold. Everything that we've done, we've had to tread carefully with respect to what we can say and how we say it and what sort of questions we can actually ask and who we can collaborate with. And we've needed permission to do all sorts of work and enter the country. It's required a lot of hoop jumping and a lot of 
uh, careful diplomacy as well. Do you think that taking a public health angle to issues around women's wellbeing and empowerment and women's rights makes it easier to to look at these issues or are there inherent challenges with coming at these questions from a health angle? I'm not sure that the type of research that we're doing makes it more difficult. I suspect that any research that is conducted there, uh, you need to be careful with what sort of questions you're asking. One of our projects around perinatal mortality, uh, there were lots of barriers around setting up those research questions and who we, what sort of questions we could ask and what sort of data we would have access to. Because mortality is such a, a clear-cut and kind of negative outcome, I think that people didn't want us to investigate that too carefully. I think that that was a question that we needed to carefully address uh, and we still haven't progressed with that project actually. So let's wait and see what happens with it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I think often when we think about doing research around human rights issues, we are thinking about, I guess, maybe legal and political issues that most people would accept are difficult to talk about in the in the public domain or um, that are difficult to put to government officials in a in a confrontational way. But it's really interesting to to think about how health issues can also touch on sore spots for for certain regimes. Yeah, I mean, the one thing about public health is that pretty much you can wave that banner around and most people say, yeah, we all need public health and it's a really important thing. And they're definitely, I mean, the locals that we collaborate with, Burmese, are fantastic and are very excited to be collaborating with the University of Sydney and are very interested in everyone wants to help mothers and babies. It's a really, it's not sexy, but it's definitely something that you can pull some heartstrings with. You know, nearly everyone's got a mother and nearly everyone's had a baby or has been a baby. So it's something that people are really motivated to, and interested to be involved in and definitely see the benefit. But then I guess when you actually start pulling apart the data and looking at things, people start to get nervous about that. So that's very, that's really interesting. I mean, times are very uncertain now. We don't know when borders will be open and, and even if they are, we don't really know what researchers will have to, to Myanmar. But what are your what, what is your thinking around this work going forward? We would really like to go back to Myanmar and collaborate with our colleagues there and to really investigate some of the issues around service provision in some of these areas or with women who have reduced access and see what we could do to improve it. Well, hopefully the opportunity comes up in the not too distant future. It's really important work and very interesting to, to learn about some of the barriers to being able to collect the, all the information that you want. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.